We're ready to go live. We are live. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Good evening, if you're in Toronto. It's a good night not to be driving out there. It's a brutal, brutal snowstorm. Okay, here we are. We are well into Chodesh Adar, already having passed Purim Cotton. Within 30 days of the big celebration, and we're learning about the Megillah. Or are we? Tonight's class is entitled Family Reunion, and you'll soon find out why. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge our generous sponsors, our dear members of our community, Eliezer and Esther Sheffer, who commemorate the recent yard site of their eldest son, Aryeh ben Eliezer. He was a fine fellow, and he is missed and certainly not forgotten. May his neshama have an aliyah. May his mishpacha have long lives. And may we together be able to celebrate and share only happy occasions. Amen. And may he have nachas on high from the Torah that we study together, as they say down below. All right, so with no further ado, this is uh, very exciting because we're continuing something that we started last week. And I have to tell you that even if you didn't participate last week, I am going to give you a little bit of a clue as to what we talked about because it necessarily dovetails into today's Gemara. In fact, I think that without properly understanding the Gemara as we did in the previous episode, this episode kind of falls flat. So, last week, we had this analysis of a strange gift in antiquity, an ancient gift of clothing. Yosef, who is the Jewish Prime Minister of Egypt gifts his younger brother Binyamin or Benjamin with lots of clothes. He gives all his brothers clothes, but he gives Benjamin lots of clothes. The Gemara is aghast. Like, seriously? Yosef, you yourself were the victim of 
what could perhaps be termed a wardrobe malfunction. I mean, you know, you know what can go wrong. Yosef, like, how could you do this? Morris says, oh, it's not so simple. This is called Back to the Future. It's not a deep history. It's a look ahead. Benjamin is going to have a grandson. My great-great-grandson. His name is going to be Mordechai. And Mordechai, he's going to have to be there to save the Jewish people in a time of need. And he's going to get lots of clothes from a king whose name is Ahasuerus. He's also going to be a Jewish prime minister. So Yosef is kind of preempting this. He's giving gifts to Binyamin, if you will, to presage or to power the future. Now, in, in our previous episode, we analyzed this in a variety of ways. And we kind of came to the conclusion that the best approach would be along the lines of a theory advanced by the Kikoyan de Yena who says that when it came to the story of Purim, the sale of Yosef by his brothers played a role. And God uh, doesn't just forgive and forget. And there was a lingering impact a devastating lingering impact, so bad that it almost resulted in the genocide of the Jewish people. But Binyamin, Binyamin wasn't part of that. He wasn't there when they sold Yosef. Aha. So it's Binyamin's progeny that has the ability to lift the Jewish people out of their difficult straits. And I suggested in our previous episode that the way the, the Gemara comes to this is because the verse that describes Mordechai's emergence in resplendent royal raiments seems superfluous. It doesn't add anything to the story. It doesn't emphasize the profundity of the miracle unless we say that this is the fruition, the climax of seeds that were planted thousands of years earlier. So once we have this approach, I think we can proceed on to our episode because the Gemara is now going to be analyzing the next detail in the reunion, the coming together of Yosef and Binyamin. Like it's like a delayed reaction. They, they get reunited and they do all kinds of, you know, the lovey-dovey stuff. And then he's giving everybody new clothes. And all of a sudden, Yosef gets all emotional and he falls on Benjamin's neck and Benjamin falls on him and they, they're weeping. So the Gemara wants to understand, like, what's up with the weeping? What's up with the weeping? And the Gemara says, Vayipel al tzavari Binyamin. He fell on the necks, tzavari, the necks of Binyamin. Ochiv, his brother. So the Gemara asks, we are on, incidentally, if you're willing to follow along inside page, Tes Zayin, Omud Beis, page 16, side B. <coughs> Excuse me. And we're about, uh, I don't know, 10 or so lines down from the top of the page. 
So the Gemara says, he fell on the necks of Binyamin. Oh, the last thing I want to point out is that if you have any questions, the screen's right here. So all you need to do is um, just uh, post your question. Thanks for letting me know what the weather is in Tennessee. This is good to know. Well, I'm glad. You, I'm not glad you're having a brutal rainstorm. I hope you have nice weather, but <laughs> we have snow here. Much more fun. Anyway, so the Gemara says he fell on the necks. Tzavore. Tzavor in Hebrew is a neck. He fell on the necks of Binyamin. So the Gemara says, the necks of Binyamin. Sounds very interesting. Tell me, how many necks did he have? Because it must look a very funny looking guy, you know, with multiple necks. <laughs> One head, but multiple necks. Doesn't say that he was a Siamese twin or something. He had two heads. Omar Rebelazar says, Oh, now you have stumbled upon the great secret of the ages. This is because because he was crying over two which would be situated in the territory of Binyamin, in the land of Israel. Because even though Jerusalem is in the territory of Yehuda, a portion of the Holy Beis Migdash. In fact, one could argue the most important parts of the Holy Beis Migdash were built on a piece of land that jutted out like a peninsula. You know, like, like uh, the Italian boot, or like Florida. It's jutting out. And this peninsula <coughs> was, <coughs> excuse me, a part of the territory of Binyamin, and Asidim Lichorev, they were going to be destroyed. So, the Torah says necks. He's got multiple necks. No, 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 he doesn't have multiple necks. He has, he has multiple destructions of Beis HaMikdash, and that's why it says multiple necks. And if that makes sense to you, that's great. It doesn't make any sense to me. What in heaven just went down here? It says necks, plural. Okay. Did he have two necks? Nah. Don't you understand? He lost the Beit HaMikdash in the same location twice. So that's where Yosef was crying about a future disaster. Never mind, there was no Jewish people yet. He was already crying on the destruction of a Beit HaMikdash a thousand years later, 1,500 years later. Because it says, plural, what next? Oh, by the way, Rashi does says something very interesting here. He says, oh, I, I know what you're asking. A business with necks and plural. Oh, he says, I want you to know. He says, Binyamin, He says, I don't believe this is correct. This text is an error that crept in. But people who didn't understand the Talmud, it doesn't belong here. This is the way the scripture expresses itself. It sounds like necks. It's an expression. So it's a Hebrew euphemism. Necks doesn't mean he had multiple necks. Like he was a well-necked fellow. Well, that doesn't make sense in English, but in Hebrew, that's how it is. And Rashi quotes a number of sources in which we find precisely that. The first is the story with Jacob, who gets dressed up, not for Purim, but to get the blessings from his father. 
ahead of his brother, Esau, Esau. That's Haman's great-grandfather. And Yaakov is a very smooth fellow, smooth-skinned, that is. But Esau is a hairy guy. And um, Yitzchak may be blind, but he can touch. So Rivka says, Yaakov, go get the blessings. Yaakov says, Mama, it's going to take him about 10 seconds. He touches me, and he knows I'm not him. Now, obviously, they must have had identical voices and all that stuff. That's <clears throat> a subject for another day. But the diction, the syntax was different. And Yitzchak picked up on that right away. He said, this doesn't sound like Esau. He's too polite. He's too modest, too easygoing. And he started, he says, come here. Let me give you a hug. But that was a ruse. He said, I got to feel you. Is that really Esau? And he had goat skins wrapped around his neck. So he felt the goat skin. He says, yeah, it feels like a behemoth. Yeah, hairy guy. Must be Esau. He didn't imagine that Yaakov had goat skins wrapped around his neck. Over there, he only had one neck. It doesn't say Yaakov has two necks. And nonetheless, it says, Tzavorov. Uh-huh, look at that. And then Rashi says, right after this, it also says that Binyamin cried on Yosef's neck. But it doesn't say one neck, Tzavar. It says Tzavarov, his necks. Okay, so Rashi says, you see that that's the plural way the Torah, Hebrew, expresses itself. That's the diction of the Torah. So if that's the syntax or diction of the Torah, what kind of question is this? And so I, I go back to my, my first point. Like, this, this, this whole question of the Gemara is almost like a non-starter. And, and, and Rashi says, that's not even the question. Well, if it's not a question, what, what is the point? Where does this come from? Very interestingly, the Maharsha comments on this. The Maharsha quotes Rashi. And the Maharsha says, you know, it's not so simple. It's true that Savarov can mean plural, but it could also be singular. And the Maharsha says that the truth is Savorei is always plural. Tzavorov could be plural or singular. So he says, it doesn't have to be, what Rashi is saying doesn't have to be the case. And the Marsha says, with all respect to Rashi, all the versions of the Gemara that we've ever seen have it this way. Not only that, the Medrash, which records almost a verbatim teaching, has it that way. And Rashi wrote commentary on the Medrash, and he doesn't say, mm, this doesn't belong here. Which leads us to the question, well, uh, if, if, <laughs> if the word savore has to mean plural, and the word savorov could sometimes be plural or sometimes be singular, why is Rashi so sure that it doesn't belong in the Gemara? And of course, the question could be asked, from Rashi's perspective, how do you get two Batei Migdash? The way everybody else learns the Gemara, Tzavorei, two necks, two Batei Migdash. 
we'll talk about the logic of next and but migdash, like where's symbolism? But two, there's a double. According to, according to Rashi, how do you know that he cried for two Bati Migdash? So the Iyahayam says, with regard to Yosef's crying on Binyamin, it says, Vayipal, and after it says he threw himself or fell on his neck, then it says, Vayevk, and he wept. So he fell and wept. But Binyamin doesn't fall back, he only weeps. Binyamin Bacha. Doesn't say Binyamin Nafalu Bacha. So it's two verbs, fall and weep where Binyamin only has one verb, namely, to weep or cry. But the Gemara still seems strange, a little odd. And Rashi's approach seems especially difficult to swallow. Okay, so here's my little suggestion. As I started off in the beginning tonight, I shared with you that my humble opinion, and it's just a little guy, it could be totally wrong, but it would seem to me that this Gemara is very precise. One episode is built on the previous one. When we learned the last portion of Gemara, we came to the conclusion together that the reason that the Gemara is addressing this business with Yosef's purchase or gift of suits for Binyamin in a different way than he treated the rest of his brothers is essentially to answer a question. It's an unspoken question, but it's a question nonetheless that there seems to be a superfluous verse in the Megillah. It's the end of the eighth chapter. Verse 14 says, Vahir Shushan, Tsahola Visamecha, Shushan is on wheels. They're partying. Everybody's happy. There's a new prime minister in town. Imagine that. Nobody liked the old prime minister. They said he's a liar. He's a lousy guy. He's arrogant. He beats up on us. Nobody liked him. I mean, I'm gonna add some friends, we'll talk about that, but. A lot of people didn't like him. And Mordechai was sweet and humble and concerned and caring. And he, he actually was concerned with the needs of the citizens instead of trying to ride roughshod over them. People said, oh, this is good. We like this guy. And La Yehudim? How about for the Jews? For the Jews, it was fantastic. They, they were walking around with a target on their back. All these extremist neo-Nazis of the day, or Islamo-fascists, were going around saying, we're going to slaughter you! Itbach al-Yahud, they said. We're going to slaughter you. The Medrash says a Jew would come to the store, he would buy some celery, and this guy would say to him, what are you buying food for? We'll slaughter you. We'll spill your blood like an animal. That's what this is literally. This is the kind of things they were facing. Bullying of children in the streets, mocking them, telling them they're going to kill them. And now all of a sudden, everything changes. So first of all, here's Shushan, Tzahola. Shushan is happy. It's, it's what they say in Yiddish. It was fantastic. Fantastic. And right in the middle of these two verses, I think one is 14 and next is 16, is verse 15. What's verse 15? I give you a whole description of Mordechai's wardrobe. Mordechai Yotzah. Mordechai went out, you know, he had a crown. It was gold. That's important, you know. And then, not only had a gold crown, he had a purple robe. We start going through the details of his wardrobe, 
And, you know, from the things we know about Mordechai, we're pretty sure that he didn't care about the wardrobe. Is it really that important to preserve the details of the wardrobe for posterity? So two millennia later, we have to sit and say, ooh, ooh, look at that. Nice shoes, Mordechai. <laughs> Sweet, nice, nice. Who cares? In what way does it emphasize or tell the story of the miracle of deliverance? That's the unspoken question. The Gemara doesn't have something about the verse that seems syntaxually off, whose diction stumbles, whose grammar isn't proper, the the etiquette isn't right. There isn't any of that, which is typically how the Gemara analyzes a verse. But here the whole verse is superfluous. And the Gemara says this verse is not superfluous at all. It's a cardinally important verse. It tells the background story of how we got here. So based on our previous episode, let's approach the Gemara like this and say, if this story was not just a story, if Binyamin and Yosef's reunion was not just a reunion, rather it was a back-to-the-future event where Centuries earlier, they were impelled by prophetic intuition. They were aware of how things would unfold. Major watershed events, big-time narratives in a distant century. And as such, they're behaving a certain way. They're doing certain things. These were inspired people to the nth degree. The activities that the Torah records in those fateful moments of family reunion clearly are far more than meets the eye. So with that approach, and knowing that this meeting of Yosef and Binyamin planted the seeds for the future redemption of Purim, So the Gemara continues then to analyze. Another interesting detail is the fact that they're crying. More accurately, Yosef falls on Binyamin's neck. And we know now that Binyamin is representing Mordechai. So why is Yosef crying? He just gave him the clothes. He gave him the power, the ability from one Jewish prime minister across the ages to the next. There have only been two such Jewish prime ministers in Jewish history. The first is Yosef. The second is Mordechai. This is a direct link. And as we discussed in the previous episode, there are a lot, a lot of connections. Yosef's clothes are torn. And then he gets a change of clothes. Mordechai's clothing is torn, and then he gets a change of clothes. Yosef is given a haircut so that he can wear proper attire and appear before a king. Mordechai is given a haircut so that he can wear royal clothing. Yosef rides in the teeming streets 
of the capital of Mitzrayim, maybe Memphis or whatever it was called, and Mordechai is led by a horse. There's a lot of connection, a lot of corollary between these two. Now, typically, brothers who haven't seen each other for more than 20 years are likely going to get a little weepy. The Torah didn't have to tell us that they, that they wept, but the truth is that the Torah already told us that Yosef cried. Yosef's a pretty stoic guy, but he's broken down at least twice already. And here he hands out the clothing, and then he embraces Binyamin. So Rashi says that the Gemara says, the Gemara is this is the same, this is the syntax of the Medrash. <laughs> the Gemara says, oh, <coughs> He fell on the necks of Binyamin. How many necks did he have? Rashi says, That's not what's motivating this conversation, this analysis, this teaching. It's not because there's a grammatic inaccuracy seeming or that something in the syntax just seems to be a drop-off so we have to look deeper and get it. That's not the issue here. We've already established that this reunion has a direct impact on the story of Purim and the future. So the Gemara wants to know, if so, there's no question that when Yosef suddenly falls on the neck of Binyamin and he weeps, that there's something else going on here. So what is it? <laughs> the business of plural and not plural, that is not, that is not what motivates this analysis. It's true in the Medrash, that's what it was. The Medrash is there, is therefore exegetics, the homily on the verse. So the Medrash Shabbos is talking about the verse and it's expounding the verse. Tzavore, Tzavorov. You think Rashi didn't know what Marsha is saying? You think he didn't know that Tzavore is always plural? Tzavorov can sometimes be plural or not? Rashi is saying that's not the point. It's not the point if it says necks or naked or two neckers or a lot of neckers. He was a necky guy. That's not the point. The point is something's going down the pike here. What was it? What is the symbolism? What is the meaning of this sudden outburst of emotion? when the emotions are already spent. With the preface, he fell on his neck and he wept. What is the answer? That's a good question. So here, the Gemara says, ah, you should know he's crying about the Beit HaMikdash. Now, truth be told, there's a lot of Purim connection to this. But before we go to the Purim connection, which doesn't really say in the Mepharshim, that's kind of, you know, my own understanding. Let's talk a little Pshat. Let's, let's go through some Pshat over here. Let's try to understand just the basics. Just the basics. How does a neck become symbolic of a Beis HaMikdash? So, to be sure, <coughs> there is a verse the verse is found in Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, a very poignant, powerful, profound book filled with the holiest of illusions, but it's all in metaphoric terminology. And it describes the, a graceful neck. 
because that's the syntax that it uses. It says, you're so beautiful. You have this long, graceful neck. Kemigdal David Tzavarecha, like the Tower of David. It's a beautiful, beautiful neck you have. So what does that mean? So there's a Shira Shirim Rabba, the Medrash. The Medrash says, The neck of a person, the sternum of a person. It's the top of the torso. So it's the top of the torso. It's the, like the apex, the highest part of the person's body. <laughs> you know, amongst different things I do, I have a chaplaincy with the regional police force here. So many years ago, I was at a, what's called a recall training. And uh, at one of the district's headquarters, there's a shooting range in the basement. So we went down to the basement and we had some target practice. It was my first time. So I asked the instructor, he's a very, he's a very uh, polite Irish fellow. I said to him, uh, he, he said, you aim for the sternum. Where's the sternum? And he explained this. So don't, you know, we don't point. I said, we don't, Jewish people don't point on somebody. He said, okay, we have like a little picture there. You always aim for the sternum. So I said to him, I pulled him aside. I said, I, you know, I heard that when you're dealing with a person who's about to commit a crime, that you, you, you aim for the feet. You don't, you don't want to kill this person. You just want to save innocent lives. I'll never forget this. He looks at me. He says, no, no, no. That's only the crazy people in Israel. They aim for the feet. He says, in Canada, we aim for the sternum. I go, oh, that's interesting. Why? He said, look, our officers, they're not on the firing range every week. They don't have a tremendous amount of practice, most of them. They're wearing a firearm, but they don't use it that much. We encourage them to come here often and be well-oiled, so to speak. He says, oftentimes the criminals who are armed are much more adept with their weapons than our officers. But then he said to me something even more interesting. He said, you need to realize this is not an officer who's engaged in combat. For the most part, police officers are writing tickets, dealing with domestic disputes, there aren't that many shootouts. And this is Canada, you know. We live in a beautiful place. So he says to me, an officer will have like two to three seconds. Two to three seconds that can spell the difference between life and death. In those two to three seconds, he says, you aim for the easiest mass. Your job is to stop this criminal. If you pull, if you pull your gun, if you use your weapon, you reach for your weapon, it's because it's a desperate situation. You've got you to stop this guy. So this is like the meaning of It's like the, you know, think of it like a triangle. This is the high point, the top of a person. So the sternum is a little bit lower with his mass. The neck is the point. So the Shira Shirim Rabbah says, 
Nasun begavah shalalem. So to the base of Migdash, it's in the highest point of the world. <laughs> I know some of you are probably saying, highest point of the world, yeah. I don't remember Jerusalem being the highest point of the world. Probably you're thinking the Himalayas. Well, the thing is like this. A circle is arbitrary. Like, like where's the top of the ball? Wherever you want it to be. The ball doesn't really have a top or a bottom. If you spin a basketball on your finger, then it's spinning on your finger, so that's the bottom, and the opposite end is the top. When we say top, we don't mean the highest mountain in the world. We mean, from God's objective perspective, whatever that means, where's the top? We would think, as Torah Jews of the South and North Pole, as being spinning on its axis, not like this, not think of north as top, we think of east as top, with the sun rising in the east. And we think of north and south as the two poles, two imaginary poles that the earth is spinning on, like this. So the top of the world then is Yerushalayim. And the high point in Yerushalayim, the, the top, is the Beis HaMikdash. Because the city of Yerushalayim, the original city, that which our enemies dispute, they call it Silwan, that was the original city of Yerushalayim. It's a very unusual city, important metropolitan city, because it's not built on a body of water. The Mepharshim say on the verse that's found in Psalm 24, for it was founded upon waters, that all big cities are founded upon waters. All big cities. This is a historical fact. In fact, the first, the first major city not to be built on water is Dallas, Texas. Because today there's other ways of transportation. You don't need the waterways. It's trucks, it's trains, planes. But there was one exception to this rule, and that exception is Yerushalayim. IMAX Theater came out with a very anti-Semitic, in my opinion anyway, film on Jerusalem. It goes back about 10 or 15 years ago, and it's a long story, but I had the privilege of getting a little bit of input before it went live, thanks to a certain connection and a friend that Hashem threw something into my lap, and I managed to move the needle just a bit. But the way they present it is, Jerusalem's not Jewish. It's an ancient Jesuit city. It's not true. <laughs> it's not a Jesuit neighborhood. There was a guy there whose name was Yavusi. Arnon Hayavusi was one guy. Was not, the whole thing is a lie. It's a major metropolitan city. Then the Jews conquered it. Then the others conquered it. The Jews are just part of the narrative. Which, of course, is it's a great story. It's just not true. And the proof is, nobody in his right mind would ever build the capital of a major empire in a city that's not on water. In fact, when Herod wanted to build a big capital city, he left Jerusalem. Where did he go? Caesarea, Caesarea. Caesarea's forgotten. If not for an Israeli airman flying around who noticed the Hippodrome, they wouldn't even know where it was. It didn't rival Jerusalem, it eclipsed Jerusalem. 
<laughs> modern-day Israel? Where is the center of business, of commerce in Israel? Tel Aviv, Yafo. Who builds a major metropolitan city? No river, no lake, no water. And it's not like there aren't those things. Ah, so why was it there? Because Hashem says it should be there. This is only by divine design. Nobody, nobody knew. Until the prophet came and said, this is it. Till God communicated. We knew there was a place. We didn't know where it was. And the point is this. The high point in Yerushalayim was the base of Megdash. In the bottom, in the valley, sandwiched between what they call the Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives, and the Tyropian Valley, and what today is called the old city, which was the new city, the suburb that was built on like a, a mountain outside the original Yerushalayim, down on the bottom was the main city. So they said, they should look up to. You looked up to. And therefore, it's like a neck, because the neck is the climax of the person. The Rebbe in Lakut Volume 10 asks a very interesting question. He says, in fact, we know that it's not the high point. There's a thing called Me'ain Itum, which is 24, 23 Amor higher. Me'ain Itum, incidentally, I heard from the district archaeologist of Jerusalem. His name is Dan Bahat. I don't know if he's still alive. He used to come to Toronto to write books. And I had the privilege of having a long conversation with him. So Dan told me that today archaeologists are fairly certain that the discussion of Me'ain Itum is what is called today in modern terminology Armon Hanesich. That's where the Turkish built their headquarters, the Pasha's palace or whatever it was, whoever the local governor was, and later the British after they received the mandate of Palestine, that's where their governor's mansion was. It's the high point that overlooks Yerushalayim. Today, the Haas Promenade is around that area where people look down over the city of Yerushalayim. So that's actually higher. And if you go into the Silwan, you go to the little Jewish neighborhood over there, and you look up, you can actually see exactly the way the Gemara describes it, that based on the verse, Ubenk Tefav Shachain, between the shoulders it sits, you can actually see the mountains from two sides dipping, and you can see exactly the side of the base of Mikdash. So there's a famous Gemara about this. The Gemara discusses it in Mesechet Zvachim, expounding on the verse which is found in Deuteronomy 33, where Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about the future, when he describes how things will look to the Jewish people in Parshat Vezot Bracha. And the Gemara says that it had to be Nomuch Esrim Vishalish Amma Me'ein Itum, lower than the Itum Spring, which was a subterranean water, source of water. And the reason was it had to be water pressure. So, you know, in little towns, here in Ontario, when you drive by on the highway, you see always these water towers. They pump the water up, and that makes sure there's pressure. So toilets and sinks can work in, in high-rises and other things like that, because if, if you're not able to pump the water up, there won't be any pressure. The water needs to go always back to whatever level it came from. 
The Beis HaMikdash had a power wash by nature. They just had to uncork, unplug the area, and a raging stream of water would wash across, across the glistening marble floors of the Beis HaMikdash. So because the Beis HaMikdash was a little bit lower, and because that was the source of the water that would flow through, it would be able to flow with great force and pressure. And the Gemara says in Zvachim, it's like the neck of a person, which is It's a little lower, lower than the head. Why is it lower than the head? <laughs> because I mean, the neck is beneath the head. And it actually looks this way. There's a little neighborhood, a Jewish neighborhood, right in the Silwan area. And I, w- I was there, and you, when you stop, and you can actually look and see the Temple Mount, you can actually see exactly what this means. They said, Nachti Beiporte. Let's, let's take it a little lower. A little lower. It says between the shoulders, and it actually looks so. You can see between the shoulders. So the Rebbe asks, um, okay, I understand the corollary with the verse in Deuteronomy. I understand what the Gemara is saying in Zvachim. But how does that fit with this business of Migdal David Savarecha? To Migdal David Savarecha would seem to indicate that the high point, so to speak, Sorry, so I'm going to shut this off because it's disturbing us. But the high point is the neck. Well, if you're looking for high points, go for the head. I understand why the police aren't aiming for the head. The head is too narrow. They want mass. But if we're talking about the head, if the base of English is supposed to represent the head, why do we stop at the neck? So the Ben Yehyada has like a, a, a different take on this. He says that the word Tzavar is the same Hebrew letters for the word Otsar. Otsar means a repository. And he says in the book of Malachi, which is the last of the formal prophets, there we have a discussion about bringing things, El Beta Otsar. So basically it's called Beta Otsar. All right, so it's like, like, like a wordle game with the Otsar, a Tzavar. How are we supposed to figure that out? Like, that's why he's crying on his neck because Malachi is going to call the base of Migdash an Otsar, and the Otsar is going to scrabble the words and it becomes Tsavar. Very hard to, to kind of wrap one's head around that. The Sifzich HaChavim has a very interesting approach. He says the neck, that's where everything goes into the body from. A person draws a breath through his nostrils, through his mouth goes into his body. He said that gives him the breath of life. A person ingests food, drink, gives it, nourishes his body. So too the Sifzichon says, the Beis Amigdash provides nourishment, if you will, energy for the world. Which is interesting but it ignores the head. It focuses only on the neck. A headless figure without a, a neck, just a neck without a head. Kind of weird looking. I wouldn't do the job. So the Rebbe quotes a fascinating mimer of the Alta Rebbe in which he suggests, and this is in Torah or in multiple places, that the idea of the neck 
represents the bridge between the head and the heart. Or the head and the torso, the body. The information center for a person, for a human being, it's all in the head. We process information by things we see, hear, smell, taste. Our brain is the central agency for processing everything. The brain gives direction to the whole body. I mean, if the brain isn't connected to the body, if the brainstem goes, you're finished. According to the mystical teachings of Judaism, the neshama, the soul, is primarily in the head. And that's why when Adam was brought to life, a soul of life was breathed into his nostrils. So the mind is ever controlling the whole body. A small damage in the brain, Rahman can result in a person being paraplegic. A person not being able to live. Scratch on the elbow is not a scratch on the brain. And the neck is what connects it. So it's not just a question of the trachea or esophagus. But the way the Alter Rebbe explains it, it's about the spine, the brain stem. The idea of intelligence, consciousness, and then the vitality, the life, the blood that's pumped from the center of our bodies, from our hearts. So the Rebbe analyzes these words here of the Alta Rebbe like this. He says two things. He says so we can extrapolate two things from this. Number one, all organs, all limbs of the body receive their instruction, are animated by virtue of the brain. And that happens with the neck. All things of the body not only receive animation through the brain, but in fact, in a healthy person, a person behaves in a reasonable, intelligent, thoughtful, mindful way. And that comes through the neck. And that is to say that the head can be very lofty. The head is much more powerful than the neck is. It's higher than it. However, the head is kind of beyond. The question is how can the lofty reality of the brain be connected to power and permeate the rest of the body? And the answer is that there's a bridge, a nexus, a neck. That's the tzavar.
And the Rebbe says, this is exactly what is meant when we speak of the Beis Hamikdash in terminology of a neck, a tzava. That's why this metaphor is used. Nachti Bei Purta, the Gemara in Zvachim means that the concept of Beis Hamikdash is to take lofty, divine, godly ideas and to bring them down into this world so that our ordinary, pedestrian, mundane world is elevated, is transformed, that it becomes electrified through this godly energy. That the divine realities shouldn't remain in cloud nine, but they should be brought down to earth. This is the purpose of the Beis HaMikdash. It's the purpose of a neck. The godly soul is in the head. The animal soul is in the heart, so to speak. How do we connect heart and mind? How do we get a person to live right? The neck. You know, the tefillin of the head is right here, up in the front of your brain. The prefrontal cortex goes right back here to the brainstem. And there are straps coming down. And it represents knowing and thinking and being mindful but then that has to be translated into the way we live. It's all about actuation. It's all about materialization. It's about making the download. It's about being able to change the everyday and the pedestrian. This is the base of Megdash. This is the neck that we have. And this is why Yosef is crying, so to speak, on Binyamin's neck. So why is he crying on his neck for two batim mikdash? Because Binyamin happened to have two batim mikdash. I mean, that's not exactly like rocket science. You don't need to have, Rashi says, you don't need to have necks tzavore. Yes, the base of mikdash was built the first time for 410 years and the second time for 420 years. Now here's the thing. The story of Purim is predicated on the Beis Hamikdash. There were Jewish people who were living in Yerushalayim who started to rebuild the Beis Hamikdash. And this is during the reign of Cyrus and then Darius I. Babylon, the arch enemy of ancient Israel, is crushed. Belshazzar is dead. Cyrus reigns. Cyrus agrees that the base of Migdash should be rebuilt. And there's a miscalculation. Everybody knows about those 70 years. And then there was Kesvi Sitna. Then there was a whole group of people who were writing articles in the press defaming the Jewish people. Delegitimatizing the resettlement of Israel. Incidentally, the chief scribes amongst them, the ten sons of Haman. Achashverosh was a wily and wicked man, and he knew this. Do you know what happened at his big party? He made the calculation, and we learned this at many an episode ago. He made the calculation that 70 years has come and passed and the base of Migdash hasn't been rebuilt. And it's a sign that God has forgotten about his people. 
but that the Jewish people, they blew it. They assimilated. They didn't remain loyal. There would be no second coming to Israel. In antiquity, there were many great nations, powerful nations, who were vanquished, exiled, dispersed, and ceased to exist. It is a historical fact that never, ever did a nation return to its original homeland in antiquity and reconstitute its national entity. It never happened. And because of that second coming, the Jewish second coming, meaning the coming of Ezra, the coming home to Yerushalayim, and because the second base of Migdash was built and it lasted longer than the first base of Migdash, the sum total of 420 years, Yish Eretz Yisrael remains Eretz Yisrael until this very day. And never have we forgotten her. Always facing Eretz Yisrael thrice, sometimes five times when we daven, thrice daily, four times every Shabbat or Rosh Chodesh or Yom Tov, five times in Yom Kippur, facing Yerushalayim. We memorialize our loved ones who have passed on. We say Kaddish, we face Yerushalayim. We bury our dead facing Yerushalayim. We get married facing Yerushalayim. We honor the direction of East because that's to us how we look to Yerushalayim. We've never forgotten Israel. We've always spoken about it. In our greatest moments of joy and triumph, we have expressed sadness and yearning. Under every chuppah, a glass is broken. The climax of the most powerful night in the Jewish family, the Seder night concludes, L'shana habab Yerushalayim. And yes, we've returned. And the world doesn't like it. They didn't then either. And the story is that Ahasuerus used vessels of the Beis Hamikdash, And he wore the raiments of the Kohen Gadol. And he craftily arranged for the Jewish people to participate. And in doing so, he wanted to affix a seal of permanence. They were there. They participated. It's final. Yosef is crying. He's crying for that base of Mikdash. But he's also crying because the base of Mikdash will come home. Maybe he's had tears of joy also. Who knows? And then he sees another destruction. Haman is an Amalekite, a descendant of Esau, of Esau the wicked. The brutal Roman occupation was said to represent Edom, and Edom is Esau, Esau. They're not mutually exclusive, these stories. There's a powerful Purim connection here. Perhaps when he cries about the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, he cries over the Jewish people's revelry at the party that celebrated the finality of its destruction. A sin for which we almost were no longer. 
But there's a problem with this thesis. And the problem with the thesis, if that's what Joseph was thinking, then why was Benjamin crying? He was also crying on the neck. He didn't fall, but he cried. So the Gemara says, simple. Binyamin. Bach al Tzavorov. Bach al Mishkan Shiloh. He understood. Intuitively. Prophetically, he understood. See, he cries over a Beis HaMikdash. It belonged to Yosef as well. You see, the first Beis HaMikdash stood for a total of 410 years. It's a long time. But there was a Mishkan. A spiritual ground zero, a base of English of sorts. Right in a place that the world calls West Bank today. But it's Israel. It's Yehuda, Shomro. Shiloh was the site of the Jewish temple for 369 years. 369 years. A short 41 years less than Solomon's temple. 41 years less. Surely you heard of Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet. Which Migdash, which temple was he raised in? You heard of Pinchas, Eli, Elkanah. Where were these people going? Shiloh. The Rambam, when he opens the book of Avodah with the laws of Beis Abchira, he takes us into the mitzvah the mitzvah is to build a place in which offerings can be offered and then he goes through a little bit of history. And as the Rebbe once explained, this idea of the history is to teach us that building a base on Mingdash is a constant. It's an ongoing responsibility and mandate for the Jewish people. It was fulfilled in a variety of ways until we came to Yerushalayim. And it was destroyed. It was tragic. So Binyamin cried too. In other words, if we wouldn't have a Mishkan of Shiloh in Yosef's territory, this thesis wouldn't add up. Because if that's what Yosef was crying for on Binyamin's neck and that's what it represented, then why in heaven was Binyamin crying? And the answer is the same reason. Same reason. Because he also lost the base of English. The truth is that the destruction of Shiloh is not documented. We know that the children of Eli were brutally slain. It is documented that there was a devastating attack for the Philistines, the Pelishtim, nothing to do with modern day Arabs who called themselves a similar name. And they captured Aaron Habrit. And it was like having a nuclear reactor in their midst. People were dying left, right, and center, and they just sent it back. Said, we don't want this. But the interesting thing is that in the prophecies of Jeremiah, in the seventh chapter, the 14th, the 26th, and other places in Jeremiah, he alludes to the destruction of Shiloh. The people are still traumatized four centuries later. Four and a half centuries later. It's like saying, you know. Don't mess around. Because if you're not going to do tshuva, if you won't come home to Hashem, what happened then is going to happen. And that meant something to the people. Today people bring images of the Holocaust. There are pictures, there are movies, there are survivors amongst us. 
How many people remember the Inquisition? It's less than 400 years ago. It was so devastating that 450 years later, 480 years later, the people still remembered the tragedy. This must have been colossal, devastating. Binyamin senses this, so he cries. The Siv Sechon says, if anyway that wasn't supposed to be the Migdash, it had to be destroyed and we had to get to Yerushalayim. So, like, what's the weeping over it? And he says something incredible. He says, Binyamin was simply doing the decent thing. He knew why Yosef was crying. And there was a kindred kind of tragedy that would unfold in the territory of Yosef. So he cried as well. And indeed, he didn't fall in the same way. So that's how he analyzed the story of the weeping. So it falls, fo follows <coughs> on the heels of the previous thesis that was weeping, and this is what it represents. Okay. So now the Gemara says, hmm. If so, then there's got to be some kind of deeper meaning in the next verse. And presumably it's connected to the story of Purim too. But at any rate, like, it's not just a little story that happened. It has a long shadow. It's meaningful. It in some way alludes to something of great importance. Clearly, because so far... All the stories we've examined have a deeper message. So the Gemara says, so then let me ask you a question. Let's take a look at the next little story. Vehine, in the verse it says, <coughs> Yosef says to his brothers, Your eyes, you see I'm the prime minister. It's really me, you see. And Binyamin sees. So, what's the distinction, the difference between you see and Binyamin sees? Everybody sees. What is the message? Omar Abelazar, Abelazar said, Omar Lahem, he said to them, Kishem she'ein belibi abinyaminachi. Just as I bear no grudge, no grudge, against Binyamin, my brother. I have nothing but love. No anger, no angst, no hate, in my heart. How do we know that? <laughs> Why should he have any bad feelings for Binyamin? What bad did Binyamin ever do with him? He wasn't there when you sold me. So too you should know. So too I have nothing in my heart, no grudge. I bear no grudge against you in my heart. For the mouth that speaks to you. 
funny thing to say. The Gemara says, Ki pi hamadaber aleichem means ke pi kein libi. As I speak, that's the way I feel. Wearing my heart on my sleeve. I'm saying what I mean and I mean what I say. There's nothing negative that I am actually nursing. No grudge that I'm holding on to. None whatsoever. The Riaf in his commentary in the, in the Ein Yaakov says something very interesting. Yosef made a point of saying that my words reflect my feelings because he wanted to say two things. He wanted to say, now I speak to you words of love and friendship and it reflects my truest feelings of love and friendship and brotherhood. Not the way I spoke before. Before I spoke in anger, harsh, mean-spirited, indifferent, cruel words. I spoke that way. I didn't feel that in my heart. That was lip service. That was a show. This, the real deal. It's as if to say, ki pi is, now when I'm speaking to you, this is the truth. There's a poignant story about a chassid of the fourth Rebbe of Lubavitch, Rabbi Shmuel, the Rebbe Maharash. And the story was that there was a, a chassid, a follower, a, a disciple of the Rebbe who lived far from the town of Lubavitch. He didn't live in a Hasidic community. He was blessed with material success. He moved in high society, in posh circles. And at some point, he, he stopped looking like a Hasid. He wanted to blend in. Hasidim don't in any way touch their beards, and, but he felt uncomfortable. So, you know, maybe just trimmed a little, sometimes got rid of his beard altogether. Hasidim typically wore, you know, like simple clothing. But he was amongst people who were well coiffed and stylish, so, so he began to wear different clothing. Once a year or, or so, he would travel to his Rebbe. He's still a Hasid. Once a Hasid, always a Hasid. So before he would go to Lubavitch, he'd let his beard grow. And I guess he'd duck into a telephone booth, for those of you who are old enough to remember Superman. And, um, you know, he'd change out of his old clothes and he'd put on chassid clothes. And this went on for a time. And eventually he began to think to himself, who am I fooling? Who am I fooling? I have to be honest. I have to, I have to be direct with the Rebbe. So he didn't, he didn't change anything. He left his beard in whatever state it was or wasn't, and, and he came like a well-coiffed member of Russian high society. And when he came into the Rebbe's study for a private audience, the Rebbe looked very, very distraught. And he, he sensed this, he said, 
Rebbe. Rebbe. I, I, it's been like this for a long time. It's a long time. I, just, I, I don't want to play a game anymore. That's who I am now. And the Rebbe said to him, do you think I didn't know? However, Rebbe's know. They know. He says, you think I didn't know? But the Rebbe said, I thought that the charade was back home. And then once a year when you came home, this was the Emmet. That was the real you. He says, now I'm finding out that all along, that was the real you. And the chosd was a fake, a charade. And that, the Rebbe said, gives me tremendous heartache. You see, Yosef spoke twice. I mean, in two settings. He spoke words that were harsh and biting, accusatory, demanding, indifferent. There was no compassion to be found. And now Yosef is warm and engaging. He's sensitive and loving. They're like confused. Will the real Yosef please rise? So Yosef says, This is the real me. This is really from my heart. I don't have any hatred. So where's the deeper meaning here? It's the Purim message. First of all, I don't know. I didn't find anything. But this is what my heart tells me. When you read the story of Purim, in Haman's accusatory terms, he says, Yeshno am echad. There's one nation that they are, Mefuzar, Umaforad. They're divided. They're spread, scattered, entirely stricken with disunity. And that allows for the terrible Gezera, the decree of Haman, to take root. But when the Jewish people bounce back, what happens is it says, Nikhalu kol Then they congregated. They came together. The mitzvahs of Purim are about Jewish unity. We come together to hear the Megillah in the largest crowd possible, we make a point of showing care and concern for one another, the gifts of food, the gifts to the poor, the idea of having a Purim Su'udah together where everybody has a way to celebrate something to eat. This is the essence. It's supposed to bring out the Achdut Yisrael. Who is the real Am Yisrael? The Jewish people who went to the feast that celebrated the demise of the Jewish people and the destruction and finality of its lo loss of the Beis HaMikdash, or the Jewish people are the Kim of the the Jewish people who bounce back with tremendous devotion, with unparalleled loyalty. Who is the real Am Yisrael? The Mamlo quotes one of the earlier teachers, one of the sages, whose name I don't recall right now. And Mamlo says, Why did Esther 
know with such certainty that if the Jewish people would fast for three days that the decree would be over and she would be successful. Why did she know that? How did she know that? And he says, because the tukfa, the gufa, chulsha, the nishmasa, the strength of the body oftentimes eclipses and inhibits the power of the soul. And Esther Hamalka knew that if the bodies would be weakened, that if the lust and the craving and the desire for sensual libido and self-gratification would be diminished, then the neshama would suddenly shine forth. Yosef says, this is the real me. He says, you see how Binyamin looks at me? Remember, this is the real us. That's who we really are. That's who I really am. And perhaps, just perhaps, I was thinking along the lines of what that medrash that's quoted by the Kiko in the Yerna says, maybe because the sin of the sale was what was going to bring about the genocide and Yosef wanted to make it clear that he had forgiven. Because, you know, when you offend somebody, you can't ask Hashem forgiveness. Yom Kippur cleanses us of the sins we do against Hashem, not for the sins we do against a fellow person. That you have to go and ask forgiveness for. I'm not talking about blind carbon copy emails to a million people and the text messages that are sent to everybody on your, on your, in your phone. In case I offended you, please forgive me, which means absolutely nothing. I find it offensive personally. It's ridiculous. It makes a mockery of all that is good and holy. If you really have an issue with somebody, deal with it. Deal with it. Or just forgive them. He also said, I forgive you. I, for, I forgive you entirely. It's with Hashem they had to work things out afterwards. Moving right along, the Gemara now continues probing this story, these, the details in the story. So what happens next? What happens next? The Torah tells us, that's what he sent his father. What did he send him? He sent him like this. He sent his father because the people were going home. He sent he sent ten donkeys that were laden with the good of Egypt. So the Gemara says, my Metuv Mitzrayim, what is this good? Omer Rav Binyamin Bar Yefes, Rav Binyamin Bar Yefes says, Omer Rav Lazar, Sholach Layayin Yoshan, he sent him wine, according to some versions, Yoshan, old wine, Rashi takes out the word Yoshan. Why? Shadaz is a kenim noichahimenu, because an elder is comforted by it, it makes, makes him feel better. Rashi says, this is the nicest thing for somebody who gets old. Why is it so nice to have wine, fine wine when you're old? I'm going to find out when I get older, Mirza Shem, I hope. But why, why is that so nice? So the, there's an interesting marsha about this. And the marsha says that when people get older, so levitivum, by nature, the tendency is that they get cold. But wine is a way of warming you up. So we get. So we get. <laughs> so the commentaries, they're like, they're like searching for meaning here. Like the Ben Yehiyada says, he says, well, you know, 
that as a rule, food and drink, that's old, is rotten. There's only one kind of food that the older it gets, the better it gets. And that's wine. And Yosef was sending a message to his father that we lost the years of our youth. You're an old man now and I'm not a child anymore, but the older you get, the better you get. It's kind of comforting. Now when it says that people who are old, an old man in the house, like a snare in the house, it says. An old bubby, an old woman is like a treasure. An old man is like a snare. So this is by Zikne Amharetz. But by Tamid Chachamim, but sages, Torah sages, on the contrary, we say, the older they get, the more settled they become, the more clarity they have. So what does that do with Purim? Actually, maybe a lot. First of all, the whole story of Purim is about wine. You can't get away from that. There's the good wine and the bad wine. There's the wine that Haman and Achashverosh sat down to drink, and then there's, then there's the wine of the celebration. It's mishte hayoyin, continuous emphasis on wine. But here, I want to share with you something astounding, incredible. In the same volume of Lukut HaSichas, the Rebbe speaks about this detail in a different year. This was a sicha that the Rebbe delivered in 1972. So here the Rebbe says <coughs> that from Yena, from the wine of Torah, we can have a tremendous insight into the business of the wine. And I'd like to suggest that the Rebbe's insight, it works for Rashi's commentary in the Chumash, will give us an appreciation of this Gemara as well. He says, when you want to send somebody a gift, so you send something the person doesn't have. But when it comes to the land of Israel, grapes are one of the things that the land of Israel is praised for. And since 1967, when we've returned to our ancestral lands, suddenly amazing wines are coming out of Israel. We're like competing with the Napa Valley and French Bordeaux. Most amazing wines, exactly where the Torah says they would grow. Phenomenal grapes. So there must have been good wine in Eretz Yisrael. We don't know that Egypt is renowned for wine, Egypt was renowned for vegetables, vegetation, cereals, grain, not for trees. It's a desert. Vineyards are in the mountains, not in the lowlands around the Nile. So it doesn't even make any sense. The Rebbe says the most amazing thing. <laughs> he says that Rashi doesn't have to explain this because he already answered this. It's one of the Rebbe's ideas that Rashi says things once. And if he said it in a previous place, you're supposed to remember because study of Chumash is accumulative. It says in the Pasuk that Yosef and his brothers, when they got together the first time, it says, they drank and they became intoxicated together. And Rashi's comment is, that they hadn't drunk wine in 20, 22 years. From the day they sold him, they never had a good day. They never, ever drank wine again. And he hadn't touched wine since the day he was sold. 
Wine is a, a Jewish thing, you know. Kiddush, Avdala, Pesach, weddings, Brismila, Pidiraben, there's always a glass of wine. Here, the nation of Israel, which was just a family at the time, didn't drink wine for 22 years. And the Rebbe reasons that it was not about tshuva, it was about pain. Because Yosef didn't have to do tshuva, and yet he was such, such heartache over the sibling rivalry and the breakdown of the Jewish nation, of family nation. He wouldn't drink wine. He was in a state of mourning. Yaakov was in the greatest of pain. He didn't drink wine. Now Yosef sends him a bottle of aged kosher wine. What's he saying to him? He's saying to him, my dear father, I never gave up hope. I always knew we would be together again. I had perfect betochen, perfect trust. It's a powerful message of comfort. I didn't drink the wine. I aged it in a cask. My hashgacha. <laughs> it's kosher. So that when the time would come, we could say l'chaim. In that sicha, the Rebbe says, what's the lesson for us? That we might be in the most difficult of times and at, at once we still maintain our betochen and we're absolutely certain Hashem is going to save us and we will yet say l'chaim together. The story of Purim is a story of many remarkable things, but perhaps not the least of a story of tremendous trust. When Esther doesn't want to go to speak to Achashverosh, Mordechai has perfect betochen. He says, God is not going to allow us to be destroyed. You will be destroyed. The nation will survive. In the midst of the worst time, he never loses his hope. Esther has tremendous betochen. She goes right into the hornet's nest, into the cauldron, into the fire. Perfect betochen. Calm, cool, collected. She knows Hashem is going to help. That's the message of the wine. You see it this way? Ah, it's beautiful. It's sweet. This is the story of Purim. It's not just wine. It's an embodiment of betochen trust in Hashem. It's what carried Mordechai and Esther through the darkest of hours. It's what brought us the light and the celebration. And when else do we drink wine like Ampura? The Gemara now talks about every dog having his day, or at least every fox. The Gemara says, it says, His brothers went and they threw themselves in the ground before him. <laughs> this is what people say. A fox in his hour? What are you going to do? He's a fox, but you've got to bow down to him. As if, so to speak, to say that the lion is the natural king of the jungle. But the fox rules sometimes. 
not by brute force or strength. But as the Reich Tudoyim points out in his commentary, the fox is clever. And sometimes people who aren't so strong have the muzzle and the brains to be able to dominate. And what are you going to do? When his hour comes, you prostrate yourself. The Gemara is very bothered by this. What are you talking about? Why is Yosef the fox? Why are his brothers the lions? What makes them any better than him? At best, Reuven was only six years older than Yosef. Seven years after Yaakov marries Leah, Yosef is already born. You do the math. So the Gemara says, "My What makes him any less than his brothers? And the Gemara's answer is, you're right. That was a mistake. That's not where Rabbi Yom Ben Yafa said his teaching. This is where he said his teaching. When Yosef came, then Yaakov, Jacob bowed to him. Yaakov was the lion. Father Jacob, the patriarch. He prostrates himself. Why? It's your son. He's the king. He's the ruler. And so he showed him deference. And I think that there's a beautiful Purim connection here. In my view, and I, just, I could be wrong, I'm just sharing, I didn't see this anywhere, so I, I'm telling you that it's on just my view because it could be wrong. Mordechai refused to bow down. And the people said to him, what are you doing? This guy's a maniac. He'll murder you, he'll kill everybody. Mordechai said, I don't bow to an idol. He drapes himself in idols, and when you bow to him, you're bowing to the idol. Mordechai knew the Gemara. He knew that he knew that you have to prostrate yourself, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that your value system gets sacrificed. You can be respectful. You can show the necessary etiquette. You can bow your head in submission. But never you bow to an idol. This serves to sharp, to sharpen, if you will, to bring out in more pungent way the bravery and the commitment of Mordechai Atzabek. As we read in the Megillah, Mordechai was lo yichra, the lo He wouldn't bow to Haman. He wouldn't sacrifice his value system. That strength, that commitment, that conviction is what carried Mordechai through the darkest stormy days and that is what has enabled the Jewish people to survive time and again. The Gemara concludes and the Gemara says, Vayinochem, Oysam Vayadabar Alibam. Yosef spoke to his brothers. And he comforted them. And this is much, much later, where his brothers are concerned, they're worried. They say, maybe he's going to do something to us. Now that Yaakov has died. And Yosef says, what are you talking about? He spoke to them. What did he say? How did he comfort them? So the Gemara brings us the final teaching. Omer Rebbe Yom by Yefes. Omer Rebbe he said, he said things which they could relate to emotionally, not just 
logic. He spoke to their hearts. What did he say? He used metaphor. He used euphemism that was warm and passionate. He said, Uma Sodanatus, ten candles, ten lamps, La Yuchlu, cannot extinguish one lamp. Neir Echad, he says, one lamp. How can one lamp extinguish ten? What's he talking about here? So we know that Neir Hashem Nishmat Adam. We know that the idea of a soul is like metaphorized as the lamp of Hashem. Some of the Mepharshim say something very interesting. The Mishnah's Chassidim says, he says that smoke can sometimes swallow up oxygen. He says the smoke of ten lamps burning cannot actually extinguish or rob one other lamp that's above it from the oxygen it needs. It doesn't say exactly these words, but when I did a little research, it seems that, at least in theory, Heavy smoke should be able to crush a fire and extinguish it. You're going to say, what are you talking about? Fires make smoke, of course. Fire makes as much smoke as it emits or gives off. But if you have another source of smoke, the smoke consumes the oxygen, and a fire needs three things. Oxygen is one of them. Ten flames, all emitting smoke, all the smoke is going in a single direction. It doesn't take the oxygen away from one flame. He says, you think one flame is going to be able to, you think I can take all of you on? Sof kosof, Hashem runs the world. My dear friends, a Purim metaphor too, perhaps? In the end, our survival is in Hashem's hands. It may look natural, but ultimately, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always there for us. And everything is by divine design. Is that not the overriding message of Megillah, Esther, and Purim? With this, the Gemara concludes its analysis of the Back to the Future episodes of Yosef and his brothers. And in our next episode, we will focus on the next words of the Megillah. And then there was light. I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining. I'm grateful for your participation. I hope that you'll be back again in the future for more Torah study. I'd appreciate it if you could take a moment then, like, share. Let's please try to build the subscriptions, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Have a wonderful evening. Sei gesund. And I look forward to seeing you back soon.